The nail in the coffin! Welcome to the Nail in the Coffin, episode number 96. I'm Tom. He is Travis. It's Wednesday night. We are recording as the Cavs play the second half of their game in Charlotte. Uh, we took last week off. Trav, are you alive, bud? Are you feeling all right? It's been I'm a rough go, but... I'm powering through. It has not been a great couple weeks over here at the Yuli House, but I'm, I'm doing what I can. Well, like all true champions, you're rising to the occasion. We're going to get back at it here. we got a lot to talk about. I figured uh, as good a time as any for us to bring back an old fan favorite, uh, our old What's the Deal? We did this last December uh, as an homage to uh, the GOAT, Jerry Seinfeld. Our favorite show about nothing. That's absolutely correct. So uh, it it paid dividends there. I figured why not uh, do it again now? So uh, just to kind of get us rolling here. Uh, I'm going to ask you, what's the deal with the Buckeyes and the college football playoff? Because there have been two uh, very noteworthy games that have taken place for Ohio State in the time since we last talked. And after the first one, when they got mollywopped by Iowa, I had just assumed that uh, any talk of the playoff was pretty much uh, null and void the rest of the way this season. But then we see them beat Michigan State by an equally ridiculous margin and had a whole bunch of other things go away. Are they actually in the mix still for this? It's funny because, like, they, they got blown out, obviously, by Iowa, so that turned a lot of people off, and everyone says, you know, they're done. Um, and maybe they deserve to be, I guess, after losing by that much to Iowa. Um, I, I guess that's a completely separate argument. To answer your original question, absolutely they're in the mix because – Quite frankly, if they have, you know, if they have a slip up on their resume, there's every other team that's ahead of them right now is going to have one too. That's sort of where they're at. Um, now, obviously, their margin for error is zero. Another loss, and they're completely out of it. There's no debate whatsoever. Um, but if you look at the teams that are ahead of them, some of them are going to cannibalize themselves. Uh, Bama, Auburn, and Georgia. Only I think only one of those should get in because if personally, if Bama loses to Auburn, their resume doesn't look like shit. Like it doesn't look impressive at all. Um, their only like impressive win is um, the one they just had against Mississippi State, which was you know barely anything, and then LSU, which is nobody really this year. Um, shit, that Mississippi State game, they were really damn close to losing. Um, so their resume doesn't look that good. You then have Auburn and Georgia in the championship game, and the winner of that would then, I think, obviously get a pass to the uh, playoff. Um, Big 12 winner, which is going to be a rematch of Oklahoma and TCU most likely, um, will probably get in because if, I think if Oklahoma loses again, they're out. I don't expect them to, but if they win out, they're in. Um, Clemson and Miami, winner of that gets in, loser is out. And then all of a sudden, all Ohio State has to do is win their next three, and they're kind of right there. So what's the? It's, it's not what, like it's not like there's really all that much chaos that needs to happen. Is my point? It's a lot of stuff that's going to sort itself out. All right, so give me the, the the quick and dirty version. Then what what exactly? If you're an Ohio State fan, what are you cheering for in these next uh, three weeks? 
you probably want to root for Bama to win out just to eliminate the possibility of them losing and still getting in. Um, you probably want Oklahoma to keep winning just to, um, just to sort of, you know, make that loss a little more stomachable. And I guess for good measure, you can root for Miami because you'd probably pass, you'd be guaranteed to pass Clemson. I think in that point, um, while if Miami only has one loss, maybe they stay ahead of them. I don't know, but I think that's kind of it. Honestly, it's not really that far fetched. The only thing that I think the biggest wrench I think that could be thrown in is Notre Dame because Notre Dame is right now ahead of them. Um, but to be honest, Ohio State to get in Ohio State has to win out, and if they uh, beat an undefeated Wisconsin team in that last game while Notre Dame is sitting at home, I think it's it's completely fathomable that Ohio State jumps ahead of them. So that's another thing you probably want to root for is Wisconsin to keep winning to make that win more impressive. All right, very good. Hit me with one. All right, what's the deal with Urban Meyer like turtling up and completely keeping the ball out of his running back's hands in close games? It Tell goes me. way I'm... back. It goes way back. <laughs> I mean, it, it's 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 happened. If you go back and look at it, virtually every loss, like close loss and that's sort of one of the, the, my pet peeves over the last couple weeks is that uh, amongst the Ohio State faithful, there is a segment that is very much in the uh, sky is falling camp. Um, Urban Meyer lost his second regular season game for the first time since he's been here. Um, so all the all the panic is a bit overblown, I think, at this time. But I honestly don't know. what I, I can't explain it. We saw it in the Big Ten championship game, I want to say 2013 against Michigan State. Um, he was running the ball with Braxton Miller instead of giving it to Carlos Hyde. Um, 2014 went great. 2015, um, the Michigan State loss where he did, Zeke touched the ball like nine or ten times. Um, we saw it against Iowa. It was a close game for, you know, there were certain, there's a couple plays that kind of turned the tides there, but um for whatever reason, when the game was close, we weren't running the ball still. Um, I can't explain that. I have no explanation for it. It, it just baffles the hell out of me. Yeah, that's uh, I, I, as soon as you talk about tur- turtling up in a big game, it, it took my memories uh, back to last night watching my alma mater, the uh, OU Bobcats, just needing a win at Akron, a team they haven't lost to in 10 years. Um in order to clinch the East Division of the MAC, get to the MAC championship game, probably get a rematch with Toledo, who they just pasted last week, and uh, in, instead I, you know, saw them turtle up, uh, getting fourth and goal from the one yard line and electing to kick a field goal in the first half, and then second half again play calling with the season on the line, ultra conservative, and then a, a fade route pass play that just had no chance of succeeding and. Um, very disappointing. So I can uh, share your frustration, even if they the teams a really are really impressive trick play yesterday. Yeah, I know. That's what drove me nuts. It's like you bust awful. that out, but and you're moving the ball at will. And then you get at the end of the first half in a game when you've put up, what, 24 points or something. And now you're going to kick a field goal from the one yard line when you need one yard and you, and it's a high scoring game. You know, you need touchdowns. That just, I, I was flabbergasted. That trick play though, there's so many moving parts. Like so many moving parts, and they all like it worked perfectly. Like you don't usually see it that. I don't know. I feel like with trick plays, there's usually just one thing 
Like there's one trick. On that one, there was like three. Um, and they all worked well. Needed a little beyond bit more. That, beyond that, yeah. <laughs> beyond that, I got nothing for you. All right, let's let's go to the pro ranks. I want to ask you, what's the deal with this sudden blood feud between Jerry Jones and Roger Goodell? I'm fascinated by this story. Uh, I saw a really good story in terms of all the struggles of the NFL now that basically the league got everything it wanted, and now it's just kind of uh, fallen off the tracks and. I guess you could say greed among other things. And then that was on, I think the ringer and then Deadspin had an awesome story yesterday about Jerry Jones's history of serving as uh, more or less a shadow commissioner of the NFL and how much stroke he has behind the scenes and how many strings he's pulled and uh, it's coming to a head. And I have no idea who to even root for at this point. I will say I'm not a huge Jerry Jones fan just in general, but I fail to see at this point what sort of value Roger Goodell brings to the NFL. Um, uh, he his previous like, and he's so opposed to the idea. I guess someone suggested they have like uh, an incentive laden contract. Well, if you're confident you're going to do your job well, why why would you be so opposed to that? And he wants some. There's people I know. There's people that dispute the numbers that originally came out, but there's also a few people that seem to be very in the know who are, you know, passionate that that is what happened. That he wants 50 million a year, uh, private plane for life, health insurance for his family for life. Like, can we stop for a second and discuss the kind of balls it takes to say, "Give me 50 million dollars," and oh yeah, you got to pay for my insurance forever. And the private jet. million dollars, but I don't want to pay for my own insurance. Right. Especially when you consider the health concerns of some of the former players in the league. Um, yeah, I, the whole thing, just the, the state of the NFL in general, and we'll get into the Browns here, I think, probably in the minute. But, um, you know, it, it just, I'm fascinated by these discussions of, oh, the, the, the league is down and, and everything else. And it's just one of those things that in some ways – it's fun to watch from a distance because I kind of feel like the Browns almost exist in a parallel universe from the rest of the league. And that really felt like it was on display when I was in Minneapolis yesterday and I drove by the Vikings new stadium and it just blew my mind that that somehow exists in the same league as what the Browns play in night and day difference in terms of just what the structures look like. And, and I can only imagine what it looks like inside. But um, I don't know. I, I just there's a lot of bad stuff that has happened in the NFL, and it's just kind of been this league that feels like it's been untouchable for so long. And no matter how many things they screw up, uh, it, it's gonna you know keep churning along and keep printing money. And you just kind of feel like at some point maybe it finally does catch up with you. I mean, you, you go from like the Saints, Bounty Gate. I mean, you had the the Patriots taping fiasco before that. Um, Ray Rice, uh, now the Zeke Elliott thing. Um, you know, I mean, just the, the number, I mean, there's the, the players kneeling during the anthem. I feel like regardless of which side of that debate you're on, it just kind of feels like they could not have done worse in handling that and making it, you know, continue to chew up headlines as for an insanely amount of a long amount of time. I mean, there was something that, you know, it started kind of brewing with the NBA at the beginning of the season and it went away real quick because the league did a good job of handling it. 
and you just don't I, I, I just I guess the thing that I'd come down to ultimately with with Roger Goodell is like since he's been in charge of the league what what big situation what big crossroads has the league come to that you sit back and say he really handled that well they got this right and and they did a great job here and they're better off for it now yeah that's that's exactly my point like he's gone from like botching things like in the worst way um like the ray rice thing specifically everybody looked at that and it was pretty much unanimous agreement that he didn't handle that well didn't punish him nearly enough um obviously ray rice ended up paying for that separately but that's kind of beside the point and now he's at the point where he kind of just seems to be throwing his weight around um because he can like the Zeke Elliott thing I, I'm I obviously have a little bit of a bias towards Zeke but in general I'm kind of reticent to be okay with a guy levying a pretty heavy punishment on a guy when it's based around a whole bunch of stuff that law enforcement has said isn't really reliable um, if you look at all the evidence and whatnot that they took into account with the specific case that they said they cited, um, the police basically said the the girl who he allegedly hit, um, story kept changing. Um, the pictures and the evidence that she had weren't reliable. Um, basically, they couldn't do anything about it because none of the evidence was you know consistent or you know likely to be completely picked apart. So they did nothing with it. And for better or worse, it, it kind of feels like Roger Goodell has the the power to, at this point, even though people who are far more qualified in these things to evaluate such matters say we're hesitant to, to press charges or imply that he is guilty of this, Roger Goodell can basically just come in, sweep over it, and say, yeah, he is. Because – like it or not, that's Zeke Elliott will now be looked at as a guy who beats women. Well, I mean, in terms of the commissioner's powers to do that, I mean, that was collectively bargained and signed off on and agreed and how to. Does the, how, how does the NFL, which you have to think, it, they have the most revenue, they should theoretically have you know the most powerful union, their union gets fucking walked over. Pretty regularly. Like, how do they not have guaranteed contracts still? Like, they need – I mean, we know how because their players can't afford to hold out. Um, they, there's so many things that, like, these other leagues have that I don't get how the NFL hasn't been able to get those yet and how they still agree to let this fucking clown who has clearly botched so much stuff already um, just unilaterally do whatever the hell he wants is beyond me. I mean, you know, you could even get beyond just the, the league disciplinary cases. I mean, you get into other issues such as uh, Thursday night football. I mean, how many guys, how many high-profile players, and whether you're a high-profile player or you're somebody who's number 53 on the roster, um, you know, obviously you're going to make different headlines, but, I mean, it's it's all the same in that, you know, you, you hate seeing guys get injured, and it feels like there have been a number of injuries. I mean, the league in general this year has been snake bit by injuries, but uh, Thursday nights, I mean, Richard Sherman was one of the most outspoken critics of these Thursday night games, and then he goes and tears his Achilles, 
there have been several other players who have gone down as well, and it just uh, it feels the like there's an... also kind of blows, right? <laughs> like, yeah, their injuries and stuff are important, and those are are noteworthy. They're worth talking about, but the games aren't really that good either. There have been a couple of this year that I yeah, felt like were really, like the them. Chiefs Raiders was dogs. really fun. And uh, there were there were a couple others, but yeah, by and large. Um, but yeah, just to kind of get back to the Browns, it just kind of shows you how far off the map they are. It, there is a, an overabundance of primetime games now to the point where with having the Thursday games every single week, they basically need to have every single team play on Thursday. And the Browns couldn't even get a Thursday game this year. But, uh, you know, you want to get back to, to Goodell. It, it's crazy, but. You know, what's the deal with Jimmy Haslam right now? Um, He's looking, it's looking more and more likely like he's going to be in a lot of trouble. That's what I'm saying. And and what I meant by, you know, with with regards to the commissioner, the fact that he just rubber stamped the Haslam's, you know, pretty quickly. And, and, you know, the the, the league approved and signed off on them getting the, you know, buying the Browns. uh, That doesn't even rank in the top 10. Uh, things that have been bungled by the league offices since uh, Goodell took over, right? Yeah, it's 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 weird because that stuff that story started pretty quickly. It was like, within six months after after he took over. And you have to think that if you did your due diligence, there would have been, eh, well, this is maybe on the horizon. Like that should have been a big red flag, right? Yeah, that's the thing I keep going back to. Like I understand law enforcement's not going to say. Hey, we're investigating this guy, but at the same time, you just got to believe that somebody knows somebody that might through a back channel say, hey, you know, you might want to just take your time with this approval process. Not saying, just saying, right? You would think so. You would think there's some, like, if you're doing, if you're doing any research, the fact that he was a minority leader, uh, owner for the Steelers, I think probably it it may have caused them to you know it had to have assume, expedited things. Right, it had he's to already in the league to. fold. Yeah, I, I I get that. So I think that's probably part of it is that they didn't they think well he's already in so we don't need to do all this. Clearly they did need to do all that. So back um, to my my question then what what's the deal now? It, it, is he still going to own the Browns a year from now? I have to think so. Okay. Um, it's really hard to take rich people's stuff. <laughs> like historically, think about I, like I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, but think about. I mean, think about is historically. There's been some owners have gotten into stuff. It's hard to take stuff away from guys who have all the money in the world to fight to keep it. Um. So if I had to guess, yeah, he'll probably still have it. Um, I was just going to say it kind of, you know, there's that after the whole story came out that Jerry Jones was coming after Goodell, there there was the counter story that came out that said that certain group of or a certain group of owners are looking into enacting some clause in the ownership agreement or whatever with the league that could possibly force Jerry Jones to lose his franchise for conduct detrimental to the game and and so on and so forth. And I just kind of wonder if he might not be the first guy to get targeted with that, you know, if things really go south here in Cleveland. 
Yeah, I mean, going back to your original question, we're asking if he's going to have the team in a, in a year. Um, will Roger Goodell still be the commissioner when his contract is up? It's a current contract. Well, he's got the, the commission's got what two years? I think eighteen months. Okay. One said, yeah, a year and a half or so before it expires. Yeah, hard to say. It, it, it's going to get worse, I think, and, and I think there's going to be a real ugly battle here that's going to be going on for quite a while. And I think that uh, once the games are done and we settle into the off season, I think this is really going to pick up steam. So, something to keep an eye on. Um, I, but think about it. If you say Roger Goodell came in and you were interviewing for the commissioner job, let's say he had to interview, right? Let's say you were looking at multiple candidates. He was one of them. And he came in and put down his resume and said, here's what I've done. I'd have a hard time offering him a job. Well, I mean, I think those of us who are fans – are going to look and see all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I, for while the profits might not be, I mean, the the TV ratings and stuff might not be what they have been in past years. The league is still extremely strong financially and they're still making a lot of money. Yeah. But we know that that strong isn't what they're really going for. They're they're their stranglehold on, the American sports dollar is dwindling, and I think at major risk. In the ne- and I think the next couple of years are going to be pretty pivotal, um, long term. I don't know that they have that they are in a position right now where they can be comfortable that a few years from now they're still going to be you know the dominant sport. And <laughs> I think that's probably a major factor when they're selecting a a commissioner is. You know, this is a guy who's kind of just took something that was already humming and made it a little better. But not They're, positioned for long-term success. And, I, well, I just think he's not a, he's not a wartime conciliary. <laughs> when, when business is good, he can make business better. Um, when business needs, you know, a pick-me-up or a little boost, when maybe it's on, on the way down and you need someone to, to, to stop that, I'm not sure he's the guy. All right, so I have a wild theory. Do we know Adam Silver's contract status with the NBA? I do not. I, I I don't either, and I was looking this up the other day, and I couldn't find it. But if you're the NFL, would you at all consider making some sort of a godfather offer to Adam Silver? I mean, I understand he's come up in a completely different sport, but... Um, I don't think you necessarily need to be a football lifer to be the commissioner. I think you need to be a successful sports executive. And I think if you look at how he's handled the NBA and how the league has improved since he took over and just how well positioned the NBA is going forward. um, I mean, this is one of those things that I just think will never happen in a million years. And I'm sure there's other people that are already working the back channels. If, if Goodell officially falls off, but, uh, it's just one of those things. Like, could you imagine a, a scenario in which the NFL, with all its money, uh, came after Adam Silver and tried to bring him over to to their league? It's interesting. I mean, probably not, but it, it's definitely an interesting take. I mean, while you're right, I don't think it's necessary. 
to be like a football lifer, it it kind of tends to be anyways. It does, but I've already heard uh, Bob Iger, the Disney CEO, is one of the names being thrown around as somebody who could replace Goodell. So I have a feeling that if it does come to that, and, and whether it's at the end of this contract for Goodell or at the end of the next one or whatever, I would not be shocked at all if it's somebody outside the box that ends up taking over that job next. Yeah, so. I could see it. That'd be interesting. All right, hit me with another one. What do you got? All right. What's the deal with Boston trying to steal Carlos Santana from us? <laughs> I'm not that's, sure I like it at all. It's not a, something I can stomach. It's a big market for him. I, what did I hear? Ten teams linked to him? Something crazy like that, yeah. Yeah, it's it's going to be hard for the Indians here to retain his services, I think. And, you know, I saw Jay Bruce as well. He's looking at five years and $100 million or something, and... My initial reaction to that was, let's just keep in mind how the Edwin Encarnacion free agency played out last year. He was looking for something pretty similar at the start of free agency around this time last year, and the Indians ended up getting him for, what, four years, 60 million, I think it was, or four years? Is it four years, 80, with like the option for the, the fourth year? Basically, his number came way down from where it was at the start and ended up falling into the Indians' price range, and... That sounds right. Santana, I think, might be difficult just because you've got 10 different teams that are all in the mix for him. Somebody's going to end up wanting to pay him, especially if you get the big market clubs like Boston. But uh, I I would not be shocked if if the Indians are able to, if not Santana, at least get Jay Bruce back. I, I, I think the goal realistically should be to keep one of the two of them if you can. Yeah, I think Bruce for sure. Um, I think you're right. I think he's one of those guys who the market could bring him back down to earth a little bit from what he wants. Um, I'll be honest. I like Carlos a lot. I'm not sure it's really that critical to bring him back anyways. Um, I think he's kind of easily replaceable. Is that, uh, is that, that might that might be an overstatement, but yeah, I don't I don't, I don't know that I know. agree with that. He, I mean, I think his defense gets underrated a lot. I agree um, with that. Yeah, he. he, he and what scares me about it, and and why I feel like he would not be necessarily easily replaceable, is what you're looking at your alternatives being if he's not here. I mean, they're already when they picked up Michael Brantley's option, they're already talking about, well, he could play first base too. And it's, if you're already thinking about that and free agency hasn't even really got rolling yet, kind of tells me that, you know, that seems like it's being strongly considered there. Um, I also think Kipnis might be able to play first. Kipnis is another one. Neither one of those guys is going to be as good defensively at first base. And what you look at in terms of production out of that position, those guys in their positions where they had been playing previously, they were good numbers for those spots, but out of first base, you need more. Um, And I think their value gets diminished when you put them at first base. So from that perspective, yeah, I, um, it it does make me a little nervous. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I don't know. It's just Boston, man. (laughs) Like if he signs somewhere else, I can stomach it. I'm not going to be a big fan if he's in Boston. There's a couple places that, like, it's just not going to sit very well with me. Boston's one of them. That would be tough. Yeah. Especially when you start thinking back to Manny and Victor Martinez and 
You know, I think there have been a couple others. Those are the two that jump out. Those at are me. two that stick out. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I I understand your consternation there. Um, I I did. I had. Did you have more to say about the Indians here? Um. No. Well, yeah. Actually, what's the deal with those two guys who didn't vote for Kluber? <laughs> yeah. Fair Kluber, question. What the fuck were they watching? I was uh, I was pleasantly surprised that Carrasco also got uh, fourth place. That's pretty great yeah. to have two yeah. two of the top four in the Cy Young voting, including the winner. That that's awesome. So, um, shout out to you. Think uh, I, I saw a little debate starting to brew on this. He's won two Cy Youngs now. Does his jersey get retired when he's done? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't know that it's that it's that difficult of a call either. I mean, he's been here for. Uh, I guess who if say he gets hurt or something, right? Or he gets traded or who knows? Weird things can happen. Provided he gives him a couple more years of the same. Yeah, 100%. Right now, 99%, even if he doesn't. I agree. I'm, I'm also kind of curious to see how the rest of his career plays out because I personally feel like there's a legitimate case to be made if he continues at this rate for the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I'll be honest. Does he? He's one of those guys that I think will definitely have the numbers and will deserve it, but will kind of get overlooked. Because even right now, I don't think he gets the credit he deserves, and he's one of the two or three best pitchers in the game. I mean, he gets the credit in terms of the hardware. I mean, he's gotten a second yeah. Cy Young, but in terms of being like a household name and, and a guy that gets a lot of headlines, no, I think you're right. He kind of flies under the radar, and I think it, it's just part and parcel with his personality. You know, he's, he's not a guy that's going to uh, be confused with somebody that you're going to see on Monday Night Raw cutting a promo or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can I can see what you're saying there. So, yeah, I think I think he'll deserve it, but I don't. Baseball Hall of Fame is just tough for me. Like, it's hard to predict. I think he'll deserve it. Do I think he'll get in? Probably. Might take him a couple years, but probably if he keeps it up. I mean, the name of the game is longevity. So, provided he gives a few more years, then yeah. All right. It's going to be fun to follow. All right. I want to circle back to one more thing with the Browns. What's the deal with uh, Peyton Manning? Is do we Do we need to talk about this? Is this a thing? No, there's just fucking clowns on the internet. Like, oh, I know a guy that said this, and he's a reliable source. Like, no one close to the team is saying that, like, it's happening. The most you've gotten out of anybody is like, well, sure, I wouldn't count it out. It could be possible. Well, I'll know it's real when he buys Bill Cowher's mythical house in Strongsville. But um... uh, Twitter says he already bought a house next to Jimmy and Bratnall. Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, oh, well, there. Congratulations, I, uh, to Peyton Manning at uh, Welcome to Cleveland. But um, yeah, it's funny because someone's like, "Look, this house is pending. And it's right next to Jimmy." I looked it up. Damn house has been pending for three months. It's been pending for three months. It's not. It's not like he just came and saw it and put an offer in on it. So unless Peyton's known that he's coming here for three months, uh, yeah, it's not. It would not shock me if there have been conversations that have been going on for a while because it's not like the Browns being a four-alarm dumpster fire has 
any sort of breaking news. I mean, this this has been going on, and I think that we've seen the way this is trending, and I have a feeling there are conversations that are going on now. Speaking of which, what's the deal with them talking to Mike Singletary, apparently, this week? That was the other hot rumor. But, um, yeah, I, I the, the house thing, I mean, that's just kind of silly fun. I mean, I, you don't really need to buy a house to work for the Browns. You don't need to buy a no. house in Cleveland. Paul D. Podesta, as far as I know, still doesn't live here in town. But um, And I honestly think if Peyton were to take a job with the Browns, it would be one of those sort of, you know, advisory type jobs to start with that, like, he doesn't necessarily have to live in Cleveland full time. Like, he's still got kids that are in high school and stuff. Like, I don't think he's going to uproot his family at this point. No. And I mean, just to get back to all the, the legal troubles and whatnot, I mean, if the big selling point for Peyton Manning coming to the Browns would be Jimmy Haslam because, you know, he's tight with the Haslam family in Tennessee. If, if there's a cloud of uncertainty hanging over the Haslam family right now, um, I don't know if I'd be in a big rush if I were him to make that my first front office job. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think that's, we'll see what comes of that, but Peyton seems like a guy who's always made, you know, really well thought out decisions just in general. Um, so I don't, I don't know if the current position the Browns are in would be where he wants to make his first foray into like a front office job. Can't say that I would blame him if it's not hundred percent, hundred percent have him just call Tayshawn Gibson. He'll tell him what to do. Boy, that was interesting. I mean, that, Tayshawn Gibson, had uh, had that queued up and ready to go to the point that yeah. I think he actually asked somebody to ask him about the Browns specifically yeah. so he could lay into them. Yeah, Fitzsimmons. He was on with Fitzsimmons and I think Freddie Coleman. And Fitzsimmons has since done some interviews, and he said, yeah, he told us beforehand, ask me about the Browns. Wow. Again, I can't say that I had a big issue with anything he said on there. It's... It, it, Nothing he said is necessarily wrong, but like, why are why are you still focused on the Browns? Like, I know you're playing them this week, but clearly you like orchestrated and you had like you wanted to make a major statement. Yeah, that is a good point. Like, what? Why did he still care that much? I mean, he's. I think it's fair to say he's in a better situation now. He got paid, and you know, I, I think he ended up on the better end of that deal. So why still harbor any sort of a grudge? You know, the, the things kind of worked out for him, no? Yeah, like you got paid. You're in a, obviously on a better team. Um, you're playing pretty well right now. Your team's playing well right now. Why, why are you still renting space out to the Cavs in your head or the Browns in your head? Yeah, I don't know. But, boy, he certainly got a whole lot off of his chest there. Yeah, with that said, everything he said is, is pretty accurate and I think echoed by most of the most of the Browns fans. So can't right. really argue with what he said. It's just a little curious that he said it. All right. Last last, what's the deal I have with regards to the Browns is uh, what's the deal with the last seven games of the season? Do you have any sort of interest in, in any anything to, to watch for? Uh I mean, I obviously don't want them to go winless because that's just depressing. Um, beyond beyond that, not really. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if, if Josh Gordon ends up playing, see if they get anything out of him. I know you don't really care about that. 
I have a morbid curiosity at this point because I can't believe it's actually we're, we're on the it's doorstep happened. of that happening. Yeah, and also, what's the deal with them trying to trade for Terrell Pryor? <laughs> oh God, um, I mean that—that's just—it's—it's it's perfect. It's too perfect. It's for too all much. the wrong reasons. It's too much. It's too much. Um, but now that's really all. I, I'd like to see him look. You know, look somewhat competent. They looked competent against the Lions for a lot of that game, uh, barring the last 15 seconds of the first half. Yeah. I'd like to see them do that for a whole game and sort of eliminate those, you know. There's, there's been games where they've looked decent for most of the game, barring a couple, like, you know, head-scratching, bonehead plays. Um Unfortunately, so you'd like to see him just sort of eliminate a couple of those. Yeah, those those situations turned into the old. Uh, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Um, oh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I don't I don't know. Um, all right, shift gears. What else you got? Oops, sorry. Uh, what's the deal with LeBron playing all these minutes? Doesn't bother me. He's leading the league in minutes again. Are we ever gonna like? I know we say it every year. Because he always plays a lot of minutes. Are we ever going to get to the point where we're just like, all right, yeah, we got to trim him back a little bit? There, they were in a real funk there, and you kind of heard me go off on him a little bit the last time you and I convened. So, if that's what it takes to get them to kind of right the ship, and it seems like they're starting to do that now, um, especially with the big comeback in New York on Monday, um, and. Uh, you know, they're closing in on finishing off the Hornets here now. Um, yeah, and on top of that, I mean, LeBron himself even said with the shortened preseason and the ankle injury that kind of kept him out for a while, he's still trying to play himself into shape. That guy knows himself as well as anybody knows their own body in the NBA. And if he's convinced that this is the way that it's going to go, I think they need him to kind of help study things for a while and and, you know, I think he needs it for his, you know, his own conditioning. He wants to kind of get himself into a, a certain rhythm and a certain comfort level. I have a feeling, that especially if Isaiah Thomas comes back here in the next month or so and plays as well as we hope he can play, that uh, hopefully that'll ease some of the burden. I, I think this will start to level itself out a little bit, and I, you know, I, I he'll get his rest as he needs it as the season goes on. I'm not alarmed by it yet. All right, fine. <laughs> like, I can't even argue with it. It's one of those things, like, it always jumps out at me, and I notice it, but it's like, it, every year, I keep thinking, all right, maybe this is the year it's going to change, and it doesn't, and then, then the year he still looks fine, so. I mean, it's still. just. It's indicative of the Cavs in general. I mean, every year it's okay. This is going to be the year they they quit fucking around against the worst teams. You know, th- this is going to be the year that uh, they're going to start showing some good habits and they're going to take the regular season seriously to the point where they're actually going to like try in games and stuff like that. And you know, it's just kind of part and parcel of just who they are and and how they operate. And it'll drive us nuts and it'll continue to drive us nuts, but. You know, as long as they're still showing up in May and June, then, I mean, until proven otherwise, I, I, I got to roll with it. 
And in the meantime, I'll enjoy the Arthur beams and um, the randomly great uh, uh, LeBron Instagram posts where he's telling New York, you're welcome, after he walks all over him in, uh, in the fourth quarter of the game at uh, the Garden on Monday. So um, it's all part of the show and the experience with him. All right. All right. Fine. You sold me. <laughs> all right. Um, I, I got anything else Cleveland sports related? Cause I got one more thing I wanted to get into. Go for it. All right. What's the deal with WWE and survivor series coming up this weekend? I, I have to ask before we get into the survivor series, I'm guessing knowing your feelings on Ric Flair, you did not watch the nature boy documentary last week. Um, I did not, but it, it has nothing to do with my feelings on Ric Flair. Honestly, I just haven't gotten around to watching it. I plan to watch it. Okay. Um, I think it'll be interesting. I just, yeah, I don't really necessarily care too much for Ric Flair, but um, I still think it'd probably be a pretty interesting story. Although I heard from some people that it was kind of wasn't really as as interesting as they expected. Like a lot of stuff that they would have liked to see covered did not get covered. Uh, I liked it. And I think that the first 60 minutes gave me all of the classic flashbacks to all his ridiculousness and over-the-top antics from the 80s and the NWA. And the last 30 minutes or so vindicated a lot of your feelings about what he's become and who he is now. And um, so I think from that respect, there's a little something for everybody. So if you have not checked it out yet and you're on the fence, I'm sure they'll re-air it a hundred times. I would definitely check it out. But uh, I thought it was perfect that they aired this now because we've got the Survivor Series coming up this weekend. And it kind of all reminded me of my experience back in 2004. Uh, It was the last time that the Survivor Series was here in Cleveland. And I was at this point out of college for less than six months. I was working. I think this is when I was still a copy editor for the News Herald. I don't think I had moved over to the business desk yet. But uh, with the Survivor Series coming to town, they had this big press conference pep rally type event for the public to try to drum up excitement and ticket sales and stuff like that. And they brought a bunch of the guys in on like a Monday uh, around lunchtime. Um, before sending them off to, I think, like Indianapolis or something that night for Raw. But, uh, you know, I I convinced the paper to let me write something for the entertainment page about Survivor Series coming up that weekend. And uh, I said, I I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to do something like this again. I'm going to swing for the fences with who I get to talk to. So I got WWE PR on the phone, and they set me up with interviews with Ric Flair, Vince McMahon, and Triple H. And the whole well, that's, cru- a, that's a hell of a lineup. I know. I was I, the whole. I wanted the story to be about Flair. The idea that I had had, um, for those who don't know, thirty years ago, nineteen eighty seven, was the first ever Survivor Series, and the first two of them, eighty seven and eighty eight, were at the old Richfield Coliseum. And Flair's always kind of had this interesting history with the Survivor Series because um, he was in one of the main events when it was at the Coliseum in ninety two, and he had his first televised WWE match in 91 at the Survivor Series. But going back to 87, that first one, um, the whole reason the Survivor Series got created was because the NWA at that time had their own biggest show of the year, Starcade, uh, 
on Thanksgiving night and Vince McMahon basically wanted to screw over the NWA and he created this other show, the Survivor Series, and told all the cable providers, all right, you got your one pay-per-view channel. Um, if you pick their show over ours, then we're not letting you air WrestleMania in the springtime. And this was right after WrestleMania three with Hogan and Andre that made a kajillion dollars or whatever. So it basically ruined uh, Starcade for that year to the point that I think in the coming years after that, they had to move it to a different date. So anyway, I just thought it was really interesting to be like, you know, Flair was in the main event of that Starcade show. And at the same time, WWE was putting on their own event and he was basically left holding the bag on the show that was going to be watched by nobody. So, um, it was just, it was kind of interesting hearing about that and just kind of his history with WWE and, you know, just the, the way he's been able to stick around to that point. But what was really fun with the interviews when I was doing these, so like first they bring in Vince McMahon and I got to tell you, it's really strange having somebody who's worth $700 million coming up and inter- addressing you by name and introducing themselves um, when when you first greet them. Like he he knew my name, and so I guess they had prepped him on who I was. I mean, I'm I'm some 22 year old nobody, and well, you know, you get the Vince McMahon voice, and you know, the Tom, nice to meet you. Was, Holy shit, this is pretty wild. But uh, you know, he's very buttoned down. This was after the crowd had cleared out, and very you know calm and not like the loody Mister McMahon character that you've seen on TV for the last 20 years. Um, and then Triple H comes in. I was really disappointed because he was the champ at this point and I wanted him to bring the big belt, but uh, he apparently left that behind. So I did not get to see the belt, but again, very subdued, very calm, professional, gave a lot of stock answers, nothing really interesting. So then they bring Flair in and everything that you hear on this documentary now about him having difficulty separating the character from the real person. Not really a stretch and not hard at all for me to believe because whereas everybody else kind of was toned down with the lights off, so to speak, and the and the cameras off, there's no difference between that Ric Flair and the Ric Flair that's just walking, uh, you know, in uh, to the arena with 20,000 people screaming at him. It, um, hair slicked back, the you know, strutting along, got a toothpick in his mouth, and I'm trying to ask him these historical questions you know, about the past and his career and whatnot. And he, he cut me off at one point and he's like, I, Hey, I, I did not mention this upstairs during uh, the press conference when all the people were there, but I want to make sure you get this across in your story. I own the flats. I open them and I close them. I own the flats. And I'm like, okay. Uh, any particular establishment that you like, more any, any any favorite spots all of them i own the flats you tell him that and he wraps up the ed- interview by hitting me with a big woo and strutting away and that was it but uh yeah the nature boy is uh, one of a kind yeah <laughs> see none of that surprises me and i know that like to many people he's like you know their favorite guy of all time and you go back and watch like the promos and his old matches and stuff. And yeah, he was awesome, but he has spent the last like 15 years just being a sad sack of shit, trying to like <laughs> be the guy that he was 30 years ago. Um, he'll basically do anything that anyone will pay him for. 
Um, they cover that in the documentary. And I'm not going to knock that too much because clearly he's had, you know, he's had some financial things go on in his per, in his personal life. And, you know, he's at a point in his life where he's got to make money again. Um, so by all means, but he kind of just whores himself out to anybody that'll do it um, to the point that his whole shtick at this point is stale. Like, I don't really I'm not really buying it anymore. Essentially, he's been riding the same promo out for 30 years. He hasn't written new material since, you know, the Nixon administration. I'm sorry. It still works for me. <laughs> and I get it. And that, that's the thing. I get it. I get it for people like it's nostalgic and you remember how great he was. And but he's not cool anymore. He just isn't. That's all I got. That's all I got. And I know that like wrestling diehards disagree with that. Um, I still go back and watch like old promos from guys. Like one of my favorites that I'll put on when I'm like, when I just need a little pick me up to remind myself that I'm pretty sweet. I'll play the old uh, macho man cream of the crop promo. Today is today is Macho Man's birthday, by the way. Oh man, oh man! Now there's a guy. There's the guy. He's got this promo. And I'm not sure if you know the specific one I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely, I know. And he's got the little coffee creamers, and he tucks one and pulling them out of nowhere. And he tucks one in Mean Gene's coat pocket, and he oh yeah, on top of his head, it falls off, and he goes, "I'm oh, balance off balance. It doesn't matter. The cream always rises to the top." Uh-huh. It's, it's incredible, yeah. and I still love a lot of that stuff. Flair just doesn't hold up for me. The Macho Man, we're, we're, we're devolving now, but the Macho Man, I, I have to say, I did not like him as a kid because he was a bad guy. But when I occasionally now will flip on WWE Network and watch some of the old Saturday Night Made Event shows and some of the other pay-per-views from the 80s, he was one of a kind. He, I, I, he, he, he's the best. And um, gone way too soon. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, it's the one, the one wrestling shirt I still have and, and will still wear on occasion is a macho man shirt. I think it's actually the same one that he's wearing when he's doing that promo that you were talking about. So, um, if you want to sing the praises of macho man, Randy Savage, you will get no, no resistance from me on that. And the thing about it is like, you look at wrestlers and the old school guys, they've all kind of like falling apart right and none of them really look that great anymore and they're all kind of clearly doing the same sort of thing trying to you know relive the glory days and and ride that out for as much as they can at this point um i just feel like flair is way worse at it than everybody else like he's just doing it over the top and it's just not working and i don't want to spend the whole time piling on flair because i know that he's a beloved figure um They've done a better job of kind of picking their spots. Like I think he made a cameo on on the SmackDown show last night, but by and large, he's. I mean, he had the big health scare in August, so he, he's not really on TV as much anymore. But yeah, I I think it's probably fair to say he's probably been trying to make up some lost funds based on the excesses of what he was doing in the eighties. I mean, those the the cars and the clothes and the drinking. My God, the drinking um, and. You, <laughs> The story that Jim Ross tells in that documentary about when they were at some podunk bar in, I think, Wichita, and he's buying 137 hurricanes or something like that. It, it's it's not hard to believe that uh, he uh, might need to um, 
pad the bank account a little bit now in 2017. So, nevertheless, Survivor Series coming up this weekend. I think it's a good card. I'm I'm actually going to try to make some time to watch it. I've, I've not been watching the, the wrestling as closely lately, but I, I did happen to take a peek in and uh, should be a fun one. So, And 20th anniversary of the most infamous wrestling moment ever, the uh, the Montreal Screwjob. I actually fell into a bit of a rabbit hole with that this week. Really? Um, watching old clips of it and stuff. Like, yeah, I don't know. I think someone maybe just shared the fact that it was the, I think it was probably the anniversary of it was a few days ago. Yeah, last week, 20 years. Um, yeah, and someone like posted something and I just ended up watching all these videos like reminiscing on it. Um, yeah, that was a hell of a thing. Like, when you think about it, like everyone knows that, you know, wrestling is pre uh predetermined and all that stuff you wouldn't think like it would like you would think that possibility of like someone getting screwed would it would be kind of impossible for them to take it you know seriously and actually get angry about it um oh but it's possible there is a fantastic documentary that actually came out about that not long after that whole thing went down it was called beyond the mat and the hart family had agreed with this director to do some sort of other story with them and and he had so Bret Hart had these camera crews following him around for weeks leading up to that whole event so there is an insane amount of behind the scenes footage including what happened in the locker room after that pay-per-view went off the air and super fascinating stuff I mean obviously you got to take some of it with a grain of salt because it's all presented from the Hart family perspective and you don't really get Vince McMahon and the company's side of things. But um, yeah, that, that whole incident in general is just a, a fascinating story. And, you know, there are still the conspiracy theorists who think that was also a work, but uh, I guess we'll never know for sure. Yeah. I, I don't know if I buy that, but um, yeah, who knows? Well, I mean, story. you look at it, the, the company, I mean, WWE was losing money at that point. They got out from under a contract they couldn't afford to pay. He got to go to another company where he could get paid that mon- that amount of money. And he got sent out looking like a million bucks, you know, um, they, they for a guy that was a longtime employee at WWE, it was kind of a nice party gift to make him look good going somewhere else, even though it was to the arch rival. That's the one part of it that kind of doesn't add up, but yeah, it's uh who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's one of those things. Like I feel like even if you're not a wrestling fan, there's still, you can still see why that's interesting. Like it's, it's a fascinating story to kind of follow along with. Um, even if you're not, like I said, even if you're not a huge wrestling guy. Yeah. It's uh it's a super interesting thing. And I think the fact that people are still talking about it 20 years after the fact, I mean, it, I, I really, I do, I do believe that it's, that's the most infamous moment ever in wrestling. Um, I mean, that's probably, that's probably fair. You know, I mean, obviously there's the, you, know, you get the, the Hogan heel turn is yeah. If you're talking, if you're talking real life infamous, yeah, that's probably there that. And yeah, I think you were just about to say the Owen Hart thing, right? That's, I mean, that's, that's a, that I think goes under more of a tragedy than yeah controversy. Necessarily, yet. yeah. There's no. Those, those, it's it's just a sad occurrence, right? Yeah. So, 
All right. Um, well, good. I think, you know, it's been two weeks since we had done one of these, but uh, I think we caught up on everything that we wanted to catch up on. Anything else that you wanted to talk about before we close it up? Uh, no, Cavs just finished up a nice little win here. So, so that's cool. Got I'm excited. Little, got themselves a little winning streak here. They're over 500 now. I'm going down there on Friday. They got the Clippers <laughs> and uh, we're finally over 500 here. Things might be coming together. There you go. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that'll do it for us. Um, catch up on all of our old episodes on our website, thenailpodcast.com. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, on uh, Google Play, or Stitcher. And go like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenailpodcast. Uh, got some uh, good stuff in the works here. Uh, nothing that we're quite ready to uh, uh, make public just yet, but uh, a lot of wheels, stuff. To, wheels turning. Wheels are turning. Things are happening. And uh, it's going to be fun. So we're real excited. And uh, hopefully we will be uh, letting the cat out of the bag soon. But uh, in the meantime, for Travis Uli, I am Tom Valentino. It's been the nail in the coffin, and we'll talk to you again soon. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access.